You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, greetings, everyone. You're in for another episode of Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. Today, we are going to delve into a realm of leadership theory backed by study and analysis. And my guest is a gentleman. His name is Don Schmenka. And uh, Don has a, a great backstory and information about what's led him to where he is now. And he has served hundreds, if not thousands, of CEOs with looking at company performance, company culture, and really all things leadership. So, Don, I packed a lot into that, and you've got a lot more to un unveil, but welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So give us a little bit of that backstory. What uh, Talk about your work that led you to this framework or packaging and, and, and very unique view that you've got on helping leaders know more. Well, it started at, when I was at MIT, I was doing planetary physics studies. And then I uh, got involved with the biomedical uh, engineering research. And that's where I, I really first got published. But as I was studying uh, humans, I became fascinated with, um, you know, grouping behaviors and evolutionary psychology. So that's what took me to Hopkins, and I ended up um, doing my graduate work there and, and ended up teaching there for a while and I began to uh, get attached to the executive MBA program. And they started hearing a lot of executives complaining about management theory failure rates. And so I was asked to see if there was a scientific platform for this or a foundation for this to be able to understand it better. And I thought that was a fascinating question. So... I said, let's take a look. And so I began um, looking at management theory over uh, thousands of years and began looking at the current failure rates and started understanding what was the, what were the genetic and biological elements that might be contributing to that. And so I started writing and um, people started asking me to implement um, what I was discovering and then uh, revenue started increasing two or three times, some companies 10 times within a few years. And we thought, wow, we must be onto something. So um, I began funding more research in that area. And now I train about maybe 700 CEOs a year in how to do this, or I work with their executive teams. So it's, it's been uh, really fascinating. And I'm always learning something where we're, you know, we're making mistakes and we're trying different things, but I'm also connecting with some really brilliant people uh, that want to be involved in this kind of movement. And so it's been, uh, it's been a fun time. Well, I can't help but think, given your the background you described, that uh, you know frequently people get into a discussion about leadership theory, and you inevitably will hear the phrase, there is an art and a science to leadership. And I think people tend, the, the layman's interpretation of that is the science is the crossing the T's and dotting the I's administrative and, you know, hiring, firing, training, and et cetera. The art part is more the so-called soft skills. But uh, 
if I'm not making too big a leap, you, you've really created some science behind the, uh, the work <laughs> for leadership, right? Yeah. I mean, there is actual real science behind it. You know, how we evolved as a species, um, what are some of the, the triggers that we have uh, that are genetically designed and how is that affecting our strategic performance and development? Um, the art is more around how we are crafting and creating and uh, putting together uh, some of these elements in ways that make strategic sense, um, not only in terms of um, evolving our companies better in their performance, but also uh, leadership and careers and things like that. So what are some of the indicators first? Let, let, let's maybe start with the kind of the wide lens macro talk about this. What are some of the indicators that show that a company needs help with with your information? Well, um, having trained like 30,000 CEOs, I've really learned a lot from every one of them. And I'm thinking the, the need for um, help in this area comes from several complaints. One is sales isn't growing faster. And so how can we double or triple our sales? So that's one area, which is really a, a, a message from the market that, you know, your product or service isn't as valuable to be voted for, you know, in terms of dollars. So what does that mean? Are we, are we targeting the right markets or maybe we haven't segmented our markets uh, in, a, in an innovative way enough to see where our um, best competitive advantage is and, and, and who's, who's our real enemy? I mean, what are the forces against us and how do we outmaneuver? So I find that um, this situation missing there is that we're teaching strategy all wrong. And I was part of the problem because I used to teach it like an analytical model. Whereas uh, that there's the analysis, you know, the SWOT analysis and market analysis and competitor analysis never really explained how a small company could violate all best practices, could violate all the industry expert opinions, could violate all what the management consultants say they should do. And somehow this company rises up and dominates their market. None of the analysis explains that. And that's what led us to uncover the human capacity for intuition and how you know the great leaders out intuit uh, their threats and the enemies. And so the greatest wars were won in, in econ economics or, or in, uh, in warfare itself. Hmm. Well, not to politicize, but I, I know there's, there's many that, that followed the idea that hmm. you know, Ronald Reagan was able to economically crush Russia or break Russia down back in the day when they were perceived as a you know world dominant beast and and there wasn't a single bullet fired to, to you know fight that war but um and i know that's a controversial topic so i'm sorry for <laughs> for bringing that up but uh mm -hmm. um it just came to my mind as an example of, of what you're talking about. But at the, at the corporate level, where, where do you think this ability to out into it, the competition, where do you think a leader comes up with that? Well, it could happen in their own mind. Um, you know, when you look at some entrepreneurs, you know, like Branson or Steve Jobs or, you know, where they're intuiting something that's missing or that provides an advantage. Other times it's group. We work with a lot of executive teams 
and it comes out of dialogue, challenging beliefs. A lot of our work has found that shifting the beliefs of humans is really what's been missing. Um, and when you look at management theory failure rates, 70 to 90%, if you go on and study the scholarly articles, um, it's a pretty high failure rate. But we find it's not, it's not, it's not about the, the books or the theories or the methods that are being published that's causing the failure rate. It's just that those methods aren't altering the beliefs of humans. And if you're not altering their beliefs, you're not altering their decisions and their behavior. So that's really where the magic is. So a great leader knows how to craft the art of uh, aligning or developing the beliefs of their people, which then alters their decisions. And then you can use the tools, you know, the books and the processes and the methods and the systems and all that stuff. But without those shifts, you just have constant failure rates. And so what we're trying to do is start a movement on bringing leadership back to where it's been in the ancient ways, which is to, which is now scientifically proven um, to, we should lead by understanding we need to align the beliefs of our humans. Otherwise they're not going to follow us. <laughs> well, that's uh, that is an interesting topic. And I think it borders on uh, several of the discussions that we've had here on this very show I've, I've come at it with a number of branding and marketing experts who inevitably get into the discussion that when a company tries to identify a brand and thereby define and shape their marketing strategy, they do all that work, but they don't look at the culture of the company and the culture does not support the brand statement. <laughs> So all this brand development work is basically dead on arrival because the culture of the company won't deliver on it. Right. So that's, that's a good example where um, the people don't believe in the brand. You know, right. Because right. Uh, you know, basically you want to create a cult, which is what we call it culture. And, um, you know, you want a cult where everybody believes. And so a lot of times uh, brand development occurs separately from the humans and it shouldn't be uh, separate from the humans. It should be part of an integration of leadership transformation uh, so that the brand represents uh, the beliefs um, of the human group. And a lot of times it's not, it's an advertising department that comes up with an idea, but, um, and it may be a great idea, but without, um, the organization believing in it, the customer is going to experience an entirely different um, uh, environment than what the brand is saying. I remember being in an elevator once at a conference. I do a lot of conference speaking because I get people ask me to speak at, at their companies or at their industries. And uh, there was a really great um, uh, advertisement in the elevator. And I thought it was really, really well done. And so as it was going up, I wasn't part of the conference. I was speaking at another uh, CEO group there. I, I uh, noticed a couple of the executives in the elevator. I said, wow, it's really a uh, terrific brand you guys are uh, are launching. How's that going? And they're like, what brand? And I, and I pointed to the advertising in the elevator. And they said, oh, oh, that was put together by the advertising department. Wow. Wow. You, you would think in a, you know, in a very simplistic view, and I, I guess I'll, I'll use the classic entrepreneurial story, you know, somebody comes up with a great idea. And so they've got this, this really amazing vision. 
And inevitably wrapped into that vision is a, a sense of the early definition of the brand. You know, here's what we're going to do, and here's the problem we're going to solve in the world, and here's how we're going to go forward. But as soon as that entrepreneur starts hiring staff and hiring teams, inevitably they they defer to, well, I need an accountant, so I'll find somebody that's good at accounting, or I'll, you know, I'll hire an IT guy that knows his computers. But they never make that connection with the the value of the vision. And, you know, do you believe in what we're doing? Have you have you thought about or looked at what we're doing? And, and yeah. I think that's where it starts to unravel. Yeah, I think we get we get too seduced by our tools or just plugging bodies. And in fact, it was interesting. I had a I'm seeing a lot of coaches offering training on training employees how to leave their employers. So we're like launching a program on how to keep your employees, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's like, why don't we teach that? Uh, and what's interesting in working with thousands of CEOs is a lot of times we get sucked into operations. And our whole brain just turns off strategically. And so we just start reacting to tactics. And, and I'll ask hundreds of CEOs a year, do, do you have strategy really, or do you just have tactics? And you see the eyes roll back in their head like, oh my God, you know, never thought about that before. But I think we have tactics, which, which means that the strategic uh, ideas of the company for, for winning has degraded into more operational level uh, elements. So the decisions are not being made from a strategic context, but from a reaction to current operational urgencies. You know, Don, it's interesting you say that because uh, I frequently talk to clients about the challenge of traditional business models, especially as larger enterprises emerge, you know, we're beyond the entrepreneurial startup. Now we're into, you know, good size enterprise with tens of or hundreds, if not thousands of employees. We've got a tradition of saying, we look at a team, we say we need a, a team lead. So what do we do? We pick the best producer or the best performer on the team and make them the supervisor. And then that puts that person on a management track, so to speak. And if they slog through, they might get recognized and get promoted. And it may happen two, three or four more times. But my point is they're coming from that operational tactical delivery mindset. And I got picked because I was good at deliveries. So consciously or subconsciously, they're thinking, I just need to keep delivering and I'll keep advancing. And then you do that enough times, you get a top of the house that has nothing but that operations tactical mindset. And nobody's ever interjected the strategic thinking into the equation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh and when CEO, he's like, my VP of sales has got to go. He's, he's got a hundred percent turnover rate. You know, uh, sales are flattening out. I'm not getting progress. I'm not getting any sort of execution. And I said, well, how did he get in his position? And he said, well, he was our top salesperson. So I promoted him. And it's like, great. You just ruined your top salesperson. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, um, 
And so people don't understand that uh, performance at a particular function has nothing to do with management and leadership. Right, right. And once they understand that, they have a different way of looking at it because as you get higher and higher in an organization, your level of complex thinking has to increase tremendously. You have to stop thinking out day to day or week to week. You start thinking out like a month, a year, two or three years out. And some people have what I've kind of coined a term, something we do not measure and we need to start measuring it is the capacity to figure it out. Do you have the capacity to figure out a one-year project or a one-day project or a three-year project? A lot of people don't. It's like deer in the headlights. They look at you like, what, what, what do I do? What? Some people, they're like right on it. And a lot of this was pioneered by Dr. Elliot Jacks, who did some interesting psychological research at Hopkins uh, and various other universities on uh, complex thinking capacities. And literally came up with a whole org, uh, org design methodology. So we, we like teaching this when we work with companies or when I'm doing speeches. And it just all of a sudden the lights go on. CEOs are like, oh my God, oh my God, you see these CEOs, like I've promoted so-and-so beyond that capacity. And we use some of our research in mountaineering, you know, as you get to different altitudes, you, your brain starts being affected a different way. And it's like, you know, we're, we're roping people to climb, but at some point, mountaineering teams generally unrope people all the way up when they can't produce at that level. You know, like some people get beyond an altitude where they just can't breathe. They get altitude sickness. They start passing out or throwing up. And you got to like, you know, unrope them and get them down to an altitude where they can function. But in companies, we don't think about that. We just like rope people up. And then we're wondering, why are we not performing? You know, why am I getting sucked into operations doing someone else's job? And so I think we forget that performing in a function is one thing, but elevating them to an area of leadership or management is an entirely different question. So as you work with these CEOs, what are the early steps of enlightenment, education, learning that you, you try to impart to get them to kind of shift the paradigm? Well, first, we, we try to select CEOs that are, are ready because, you know, a CEO already knows everything. They're totally unhealthy. We can't help them. They're totally um, unable to, to grow because they already know everything. Um, but we love CEOs that are on a journey. Either they're in, in pain because they realize things aren't working and I need help. Uh, or they're on the other end of the spectrum where they're more of an enlightened group. But meaning like, hey, we're on top of our game, but we got to stay there. You know, we have to keep keep pushing the envelope, keep keep climbing, you know, that kind of thing. And so those are great CEOs to work with. So, um, but the first thing I usually... Uh, try to approach them on and i and i encourage everyone to do this is what is your strategy for winning because if you don't understand that all the rest of these discussions are meaningless because everything you should be doing as a leader is contributing to to whatever winning is and my um it's interesting i have a great coach uh, mark levy who uh, was the coach for simon sinek who who actually helped him discover the why thing and uh, so I said, hey, help me, right? I mean, what am I doing? And because I've got all these projects going on and he's been great. But he said, he said, he went to this conference and he interviewed a lot of the top CEOs in, in, in the country and he presented their definitions of strategy. 
And he said, Don, your definition was the buzz of the entire conference. And I forgot I even said it. It was so simple. But I, I now use it uh, with more purpose. And it's simply this, you know, what does winning mean and how do we do it? And I find that a lot of CEOs haven't asked that of themselves or their teams. What does winning really mean? Because defining that allows us to deal with the how. And the how is important. I mean, the why is important too, but it's really about the how. How do I win now that I know what it means? And so we like to start there because if that isn't clear, what structure do you need? I don't know. What culture do you need? I don't know. What processes do you need? I don't know. I mean, we can go through the whole list. I have no idea what you need because I don't know what you're trying to do yet. I like that theme there, define the winning, what winning looks like. And I think that dovetails very nicely with something that I've encouraged leaders to think about and understand. And I take a page out of a sales book that says a confused mind says no. <laughs> and, you know, the sales guys think about that in terms of talking to a prospect, but I think leaders need to know that in terms of dealing with their team. And if, if your team is confused, they're fundamentally going to do nothing. They're not going to necessarily do the wrong thing because generally people don't want to do wrong things. You know, good, healthy, mentally capable, emotionally balanced people don't want to do wrong things. So they do nothing because they don't know right, right. what a win looks like. Yeah. So I tell leaders, if you feel like your team or your organization is stuck or flatlined, look in the mirror. You have probably stopped telling them what a win should look like. Yeah. And, and it's interesting paradox. Um uh, in the research, and you, you might have found this out in your, in your own work too, that uh, when I began studying entrepreneurs, because people were saying, Don, you're training you know, 30,000 CEOs. What about entrepreneurs? And a lot of these CEOs have been entrepreneurs or still are. Um, but it was around winning as an entrepreneur. I found out that once they understood what winning means, the opposite paradoxical episode occurred, which is how do we lose powerfully? It wasn't losing. It's like we have all these books on how to win, how to be a winner, how to do this. But when it talked to the winners, their history was littered with failures. And I'm thinking, you know what we're not teaching? We're not teaching people how to lose powerfully. And it's and it opens up a whole new, whole new uh, shift because so, so this book I had coming out in the fall called Winners and Losers. It's it's what I learned from interviewing 30,000 CEOs. And um uh, who said it best, Mandela? You know, I never, I never lose. I always win or I learn. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the whole point. Because if you can create a culture where they know what winning means and they have permission to learn, meaning let's make some mistakes, let's, um, you know, let's commit errors, in, not on purpose, but we're going to figure this out because most of the time, and what I learned with working with Black Hawk Down, which was a fascinating project I did, a meeting Matt Eversman, uh, is that no plan's supposed to work, you know, because the enemy has a vote. So we need to teach planning differently. It's going to fail, but it's in that level of failure, that level of things not working is where the magic happens. So I think the more we can train culture to embrace uh, losing in a way 
where it's a powerful moment to learn and grow. We have now vital organizations that can always adapt, respond, you know, pivot, uh, you know, just be more resilient. So I think we need to stop um, teaching winning as you're either winning or you're, you're a loser. No, I think you're either winning or you're learning. So let's give ourselves permission to make mistakes and, and move forward. Have you seen that in your work with um, CEOs and people out there? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely, well, there's definitely an aversion to the idea that we, we failed. There, there's a, still a fundamental a categorical, and, and yes, there's pockets of uh, amazing exceptions, uh, but I think a lot of people still operate with a framework of that possibility of fail, and there is a very distinct, and it's all, in my mind, it's all human psychology, it's that attitude about failing, being, you know, and, and being afraid of it, and having that fear factor that is oh, sometimes overwhelming. And I have, uh, I have just recently talked to several CEOs that w when you look on paper at their company trajectory, they're, they're doing well. They're, I mean, they're outperforming the market. They're, they're uh, uh, denying the economic condition and still performing, you know, with the economy around them being challenging. And yet when you get on a personal level, they will admit to me that, they they wake up in the morning afraid of losing it all. Yeah. And I'm like, well, <laughs> where is that coming from? You know, it's one thing to have a healthy appreciation for the associated risks of whatever business you're doing, you know. Right. You know, ha having a good assessment and some good alternatives and some strategies and all for risk mitigation and management. But to literally admit you wake up afraid you're going to lose it all, you know, that's that's got to be a whole different psychology. Yeah, I mean, um, and I, what I found when I, with entrepreneurs, they do have a higher, higher capacity to risk than normal populations. And um, there's actually a section in the book on that, which I found is something you can't train. It's like no. you either have it or you don't. Right. And so we have a lot of entrepreneurial classes out there, but I don't know if you can really train an entrepreneur. It's like, it's like you're either, you're either comfortable with risk and, and that challenge and uncertainty or you're not. Um, and people, I know there's a lot of, especially in high tech trainings for, you know, fail fast, fail forward and all that. But it's one thing to have a project off course and then you have a, a meeting with your team to figure out, okay, how do we fail? What do we learn? Um, and then you go forward to the next uh, project in the company. But it's another thing when you lost your house, you know, you're, you're uh, on the verge of divorce. You haven't seen your kids in six months. Uh, the banks are shutting you down. Um, that's a whole different experience than having a team fail meeting at a high tech company. Yeah. That's totally different experience. Mm -hmm. And but entrepreneurs, that's kind of like the world they live in. Are we willing to risk everything? Are, are we willing to, to fail at the level where we're, we're bleeding literally, right? As opposed to, well, we had a bad day at the office. That's a different way of processing failure. Right.
Right. And I've actually begun to question uh, on that topic, question the uh, sort of the generational evolution in, in the workforce and some of my observations are, and, and I, I'll be the first to admit, nothing I'm getting ready to say has any real scientific basis in a in terms of study, but just sheer anecdotal observation. I, I think the younger generations actually have a, a, a lesser tolerance for risk in in the terms of you're you're basically betting the farm on your venture. You know, yeah. you you've maybe taken out that home equity loan so you can fund the business. And if it fails, you know, there goes your house. I, I, I don't see that kind of risk dynamic emerging in, in some of the younger folks. And maybe I just haven't been exposed to enough of them that are choosing the entrepreneurial path. But what I'm saying is they seem to want more security in what they're doing because their attention is more focused on family and quality of life and those other things so they don't want to gamble that for the for the return they might be getting on some kind of business enterprise yeah it's um it really depends on the um the style because um you know there's nothing wrong with having a stable job career and developing and growing that way um entrepreneurs and maybe in a, in a good sense are are probably a little crazy um you know, my uh, friend, Dr. John Gartner, wrote the book on hypomania, where he actually did a look at, you know, the entrepreneurs throughout history for centuries. And it may be that we need a few crazy people, but not a lot yeah. <laughs> in the world, right, to create countries, to take risks. Um, and when I did the book, Winners and Losers, uh, that's coming out this fall, you'll see like there there's interesting examples where these great entrepreneurs are touted as being successful, but when you go behind the scenes, they easily admit, I made a ton of mistakes. You know, I lost this, I lost that. I uh, was personally at risk hundreds of times. And it, that's really where I think the magic is. Now, does everybody want to do that? No, of course not. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Why, why would you want to do that on purpose? But those few actually create companies uh some don't make it some do and it's just a matter of picking yourself up the samurai research i did for my first book code of the code of the executive was um you know you, you fall i forget how to say it in japanese you fall down seven times get up eight you know always get up and um mm -hmm. that's what entrepreneurs do um but it's not probably something the uh, average healthy person wants to do it's like right. i'd rather just right. not fall down you know i'd rather just right. you know do that and and so you know even though you may have a crazy person co creating company you need stable people around them you know and um and that's what i'm, I'm always trying to get to because i I've, i have a, a hundred different projects uh um you know, I just I was just on the phone yesterday with George Stock, who started the lean manufacturing revolution. He's done a, a dozen Harvard Business Review articles, and he's come up with uh, this issue from the military OODA loop jet pilot thinking and disruption and all this stuff. But it's like we want to start a, a think tank, like a research area for CEOs to pioneer new strategy thinking and new models and all that. But it's like, great, we can do that now, but we're going to need people around us 
to put into play. I mean, people that can organize, people that can say, hey, you guys, this is a little off kilter. Let's focus here. Uh, so it's a good balance to have a team. And I always find this out with entrepreneurs I work with. They would have a great idea, but they needed that person. I think they, they call it integrator now. I heard somebody say that it's a, it's a new term. You need an integrator or an integration team that can take your vision into action. That's a whole different skill set right. that requires right. organizing, that requires execution, measurement, uh, like that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know in the uh, very popular, you know, uh, EOS world, Gino Wickman identified roles within a company. And, you know, the founder visionary is a distinct separate role. And his challenge in the book, as I recall it, was that the classic entrepreneur who starts this up has that vision, has that idea, may not be the guy to execute on the idea. Right. So you need to hire that executive or operations guy that, that can turn it into reality. Yeah. And, and if you're the founder, owner, creator, you got to get comfortable with that. It, it's a little bit, it feels like giving up some control, but but you've got to get comfortable with that if you're really going to maximize the opportunity. Yeah. And it's hard to find that person. God knows I have fired, I don't know, half a dozen teams, you know, and they all came in with the best credentials and all this other stuff, but they couldn't execute. You know, I, I brought in some of the top at some of the top business school universities and, uh, uh, and having someone get like the idea and the vision and where we're going they couldn't figure it out. They just, they could, they, you know, they stumbled. I ended up um, having to come in and turn the company around, which I hate doing because I want to be off doing more research and teaching and, you know, doing things like this with you, Doug. Um, so it's really hard for an entrepreneur, I think, to find the right person. And I have an advisory board and um, they're all incredibly successful. And I find that for most of them, it was, it was either maybe, a, I don't know, a nephew or, uh, um, one of their kids or the spouse or, you know, a close friend or somebody that showed up that got it, that had that high figure it out capability. And, um, and I think that's what we need. And it's a, we need a team like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, let me ask you this, Don, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. There's a, you know, a number of hot topics in leadership training and development uh, in current day speak. And, and the big one that usually is at the top of the heap is the whole study of emotional intelligence. You know, what, what does a leader need for emotional intelligence to be able to perform? Where, where does that whole EIEQ fit into your framework or how is it addressed? I think it's um, it's it's a great model, and I encourage people to look more at at that so they can have a sense of those elements. Um, and yet, I, I in fact, I I have this in my workshop now because I started noticing some things. I, I think we're teaching leadership all wrong because we'll have. Um, you know, okay, we need a leader that has a high EI capability. We need a level four leader. We need a servant leader. We need a participative leader. We get all these different styles of leadership that come out. And then we all gravitate to try to be that kind of leader. But I think we're teaching it wrong. Because when I look at 
some of the most successful companies, it was like an asshole leading it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, look, Steve Jobs died and, and I, I, God bless Apple. They funded a lot of our creation research with my colleague, Cameron Logman. So we got really into innovation in the brain and the brain works, but they wrote books about him and movies. I mean, I asked, well, well, what was he like? And, and, and of course, all the books and everything were like, well, he was dismissive. He was a bad, he, he was a bad manager in terms of he was an asshole and he was abrupt and he was basically didn't resemble a great AI leader at all. And then I went through history and I saw this pattern. And then I think even did Forbes write that article, something like, do you need to be a jerk to be a good CEO? I don't, I don't know. It was, I mean, Patton was an asshole and they just published like Mother Teresa was an asshole. I mean, what? Mother Teresa, you know? Uh, so you can Google it. But what was interesting about this is that what were they doing if they were violating all these, you know, IQ, EQ, servant? Uh, and I realized we're teaching leadership wrong. There's nothing wrong with these styles. They're all terrific, but they have to result in speed of execution. They all have to produce the result of strategic execution in a very fast and adaptable way to get to, to win. And I started seeing a lot of bankrupt companies that had great leaders who were had high EQ, had high servant leader purpose. They knew the why, they knew this, and they were great. They were doing everything the books say, but they were dead. And so I started flipping the question, like what was really happening? And so now when I'm teaching, this is like, hey, these are all great styles, but I think you should choose the one that helps you execute fast and get the results you need quickly. That's the one you choose. Mm -hmm. Now, look, if it ends up being you're an asshole, I'm not supporting that, but it's, it's been great to be a nice guy and get the results you want, but I can't ignore the data that, a lot of these great leaders violated everything we're teaching. And yet somehow, I mean, Steve Jobs, great example, creates the most powerful company in the world. How does this happen with a guy that violates what we're teaching in our MBA programs? I don't know, but it's a good question. And so I think the leader needs to be somewhat resilient and adapt and choose a style that works for them. I really think that's the key. I, I, I remember Peter Schutz, former um, a CEO of Porsche, and uh, I met him on the circuit a couple of times, brought him in to talk to some groups. And he had an interesting model that I thought was fascinating. You know, when, when you're in a race and, and, he, and he said, when, when that car comes into the pit stop, that's not the time to have a team meeting. That's not the time to process your EQ. That's the time to shout and somebody responds. And it's not right. like, well, you hurt my feelings. I don't like how you're talking to me. When, what are you talking about? Grab the hammer, grab this, grab that, do this. And people have to execute. And then you get that car back in the race. Then you can have a team meeting. So I think we forget, like, what is it we're supposed to be doing as leaders? And I right. think it really depends. I think I think that is the challenge. And, and I agree with you 100%. All of the different styles that are espoused are, are you know, on paper, they're, they're wonderful. There are studies that prove effectiveness in certain scenarios, et cetera, et cetera. But you're absolutely right. The 
you know, success of the, the business is ultimately based on execution and timely delivery with, <laughs> with a, a margin that allows sustainable operation. You know, you, you have to be making some money as you put things out the door. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a banker friend famously said, if your margin's upside down, you can't make that up in volume. <laughs> That's right. But um, I, I know when I work with my executive clients, I encourage them to start with a an exercise to begin defining their own leadership framework. If it's a little bit servant, if it's a little bit collaborative, if it's a little bit participative, or even uh, some old school command and control. Yes, right. You you. You make it a casserole of leadership abilities, and if if that fits for your personality, your your internal wiring that that you've evolved into, then you're going to be able to maximize your effectiveness as a leader. But you know, there's six or eight hundred thousand books on leadership over on Amazon, and every one of them has some list of framework that you can recommend and follow. But I cut through all that with my clients and say, no, let's let's think about what works for you. And a lot of times, if, if they give me a little bit of a blank stare on that question, I'll say, all right, well, let's do it this way. Give me some examples of leaders that you know about. Either you've worked for them or you observe them. What is the attribute that that person demonstrated that resonates yeah. with you? And let's build a list starting with that. And that kind of gets the pump primed a little bit. And next thing you know, they're going, oh, yeah, I need to do this. I need to do that. And that's who I want to be as a leader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, a great exercise. I uh, I do this test when I uh, go through this workshop where in the beginning it's like, okay, you got all these issues and you want great leaders around you. Give me a list of what a great leader looks like. And they literally give me the same list. I've done this with 30,000 CEOs and over 2,000 speeches. Somebody told me I did 2,000 speeches. I thought, you got to be kidding. It's like, no, look at them. Okay, okay. But um, I've never had a, a group uh, say, I just really know what leadership is. I'm here for you to tell me. No, they know exactly what it is. And so that kind of exercise you're doing, I mean, it kind of makes sense because we know. We don't need to read another book. I mean, they know what they want. Um, I think we need to act on it. I think that's the point. And we... Uh, uh, I think with like what you're doing, it's helping people like uh, just voice it and let's make it work versus have to learn some strange new leadership patterns. Right. You know. Right. Well, and as you know, the psychologists tell us, I don't know the technical term for it, but the things we see in others are, are usually indicators of exactly how we're showing up, you know, and so <laughs> we're sensitive, you know, you, you, you buy that, that red Porsche and next thing you know, it looks like everybody's driving a red Porsche, you know, you're, you're tuned into that wavelength and, and now there's awareness and sensitivity of it. I think the same thing holds true with that observation of, of, of leadership trait that you value if, if, if it really resonated with you, then likely you're wired to be able to do that yourself. And so as, as people start putting that together, inevitably they go, yeah, you're right. That's, I, I can see that. I, I can do that. And, and that's where I want to be. So it, it, it really does 
help people get this process started. Um, well, Don, I tell you, I, I certainly have enjoyed this. I feel like we could go on for a long time, but I know oh, yeah, me too. Have, have other uh, schedules in front of us. So um, we're going to have to kind of bring this to an end. Tell right. folks the best way to get a hold of you if they are interested in learning more. Sure. The main website that we're using is uh, Saga Leadership. We stole it from the Vikings, Saga, S-A-G-A. Uh, leadership.com and uh, we're trying to keep um, you know some downloads up there for people that want to look at like somebody said how do I know which book worked like you were telling me you're telling people look forget it let's focus on these things so I put this um, a download on how to tell when there's a, a charlatan out there or how to like validate with you know so that's available but I'm going to try to keep that website and really be the source for our research for our new programs and all that so feel free to jump on there and you know, do a download. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, Don, again. I really appreciate your work and uh, exciting stuff. And folks, I'll, I'll tell you, as, as always, the information to get a hold of Don it will be in our show notes. Just click the links below here. And if you're listening on your favorite streaming service, we do have a video of this episode over on YouTube, channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I... Boy, there's so many things going through my mind right now, Don. I, I, you know, I, I think if, if speaking to the crowd out there, if you're in a leadership role, trying to run a company or run a large team, it's, it, it's no better time than today to really look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, am I showing up as the leader I need to be? You've heard some great ideas from Don about, execute and define winning and and a number of other things punch the replay button and go back through the checklist of things that that don shared with us here but um i i want to ask you to take this to heart and and think about how it can help you make a difference in the work you're doing so we're going to sign off say goodbye and wish you a great day you've been listening to leadership powered by common sense hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.